for leading us in worship this morning. My worship this morning began last night. Yours? My worship this morning began last night. I was in my office. When the church empties, I turn up the sound on the speakers from my computer. And that may not sound like much if you've got your ordinary computer speakers, but uh, I was blessed actually by one of our church members several years ago now with a set of Bose speakers for your computer. And I don't know if you heard me at your house, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure if you walked by my window last night, you heard. And I was in it and enjoying it, not hearing anything else when Mike walked in startled me because I was all by myself with the Lord as far as I knew. And uh, the joy of that moment just, I hope, uh, was shared across my experience to Mike. And um, when Mike stepped out of the room, I turned it back up and back on. And when I came this morning, I turned it back up and back on. I'm not sure if those who came early this morning heard me in there or not, but uh, we talked about being the light of the world. We don't always know we're the light, but we are. I like this because all the lights have multiplied from one little green dot last week to a whole bunch of green dots, and I'm kind of hoping that's what happened. I'm kind of hoping from week to week, there's not just one dot, but many, many, many points of light called to be described by Jesus as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's you. Isn't that crazy? That's you. God of heaven said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Amazing. Kind of crazy, really. If you've been reading, if you've been studying along with us in Matthew chapter 5, you know... uh, we've come to the next piece where Jesus goes to a new section. It's, it's, it, preachers, we, have, we make points along the road, right? We, we walk ourselves along and we, we have our introductions and we have our first point and we have our second point and our illustration and our final point, right? We've got kind of the process. It's three points in a poem. That's, that's what a sermon looks like. And so uh, this morning, I want you to understand Jesus is transitioning. He's on to a new point. You can tell by the way he begins. He begins with this phrase, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets. Now I want you to understand what this is. This is a preacher anticipating the next question. This is a presenter anticipating the next person's question. He already is aware of what's on their minds. He's already aware of what's going to start building within the congregation if he doesn't say something quick. And so he's presented some things that he knows have kind of knocked them off their moorings a little bit. He knows they're a little bit out of balance at the moment. And if he doesn't catch them, they're going to fall off. They're going to wander off and their minds are going to be on something else within the next five minutes. And so he catches them right here. And I want you to to catch this with us as we walk through the text this morning. 
the text is Matthew chapter 5. And if, you, if you're opening it in your, in your Bible, you're going to start there at about uh, verse 17. If you're looking on your device, just keep punching the numbers. It'll come up eventually. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I'm reading a New King James Version. I've got a big, hefty Bible. It seems to have uh, more significance that way. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, one tittle, these are the, the tiniest marks that are possible in the language, one little dot, one little curl, curl of a line, one little bit of, a, of, the law, of the law, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we ask your blessing as we open your word, as we unpack some of the things we've just read. We are blessed to have your leadership. We pray for specific leadership in this part of our worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Jesus begins his his sermon, he first sort of redesigns the way they understand spirituality. He redesigns, recommissions the process, the understanding of how spirituality works in the minds of the people of Israel. Remember, this is a Jewish audience. This is an audience that has learned from the Pharisees, the rabbis, the scribes, their whole lives, a certain matter, a certain process, a certain means of salvation. And that means of salvation is very specific. It's like climbing a ladder. And if you miss a rung, you go back to the bottom and you start over. And each time you miss a rung, you keep starting over. And most of them have spent their whole lives at the bottom of the ladder wishing they could climb. And Jesus comes along and he says, What is really spiritually awesome, and this is what blessed are means, if you're with us for the first time, there's no R, there's no R in there, look in your text, the R is italicized, which means it's not in the original language, there's no R there, A-R-E is not present, so what he's really, he's declaring something that in in the language you would have gotten that we miss in English, he's saying, it's awesome, it's amazing, it's fantastic, each one of those blesseds should come off to you more like that. He says it's really spiritually awesome to be merciful and to have pure motives and to bring peace like a cloud that surrounds you. From the first inkling of repentance to the martyr's stake, you will have the assurance and the covering, the process that grace that assures you of heaven. That's what Matthew chapter 5 3 to 10 is, as he describes the entrance into a spiritual walk and the conclusion, the ultimate, uh, ultimate most uh, feared conclusion of that spiritual walk, martyrdom, he describes a growing process that leads you to be merciful, to lead you to pure motives, and that leads you ultimately to carry peace around with you like a cloud that can engulf your neighbor. That's the spiritual walk Jesus describes, and it's really making people uncomfortable. Then he says, people like this 
All of us are described, are, are to be salt, mingling with the world, and light shining out to a pathway. And as he closes that little phrase, as he, as he gets past that introductory point, as he gets past this reset of spirituality, he knows his audience is kind of going, oh no, oh no. And they're kind of, kind of shifting and falling and they don't understand what's going on. This is changing everything. And whispers begin to happen. Murmuring in the audience begins. People start turning to their neighbor and saying, I don't think that's what the Bible says. I don't, no, that's not what Moses teaches. A little bit of murmuring is starting to come. It's starting to work. The Pharisees are planting seeds of doubt that this man can be trusted in what he's saying. And yet he's speaking with such authority that the crowd's sort of taken in by it. And so there's this moment when the crowd's on the brink of swaying off course. And Jesus says, don't let your minds get wandering here. He recognizes this is objectionable. This kind of grace that covers you from the moment you turn toward Jesus until you stand at the martyr's stake is disorienting to them. It's uncomfortable to people. It's even objectionable to people. Uh, having preached on grace now for about the last 15 years, I can tell you there are a whole bunch of people who are objecting to the idea of God's grace covering you from the moment you repent and start home until the day when you die. Lots of folks find this objectionable. Unfortunately, you're not objecting to me. You're objecting to Jesus. So just chill for a moment. He says, do not think. Don't get started on the wrong path. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. He's saying, hold your horses, folks. Don't get yourself off into some kind of theological tizzy. Hold on just a minute before you start getting yourselves all into a lather. I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. Hang on, let me explain. And what Jesus spends the rest of the text from here to verse 48 doing is explaining and illustrating what he means by this point. So I'm going to try to capture the, the moment here, the initial conversation, but I won't try to capture all the illustrations. I'm going to leave those for Pastor Tim next week. But I, I want to just give you, first of all, the setup, the setup for the illustrations that are to come all the way to verse 48. I, do not, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. Don't worry. Don't get yourself frustrated. Don't get off your moorings. I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purposes are achieved. Till it reaches the full capacity. Till its fulfillment. Till it does the work it was planted to do. Until its purposes are achieved. So... If you ignore the least commandment, now note the word ignore. Ignore. If you just refuse to accept it as God, if you just blow it off as if it's unimportant, if you just completely turn your back on what you know is a word from God, if you completely ignore the least command of mine, if you completely ignore this least command and teach others to do the same, note that second half, note that second half, You've got enough trauma if you ignore it for yourself. If you teach others to do the same, there's bigger drama, bigger trauma, and bigger problems here. You will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Unless you think, hey, last one in the door is still in, I could be least. Can I just help you understand that what he's describing is you are the least 
Oh, I lost the word. You are the, the least able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? You're like at the bottom of the list of possibilities here. If you've ignored me and you've taught others to ignore me, then you're at the bottom of the possibilities list of this process. Now, if, before, before you get real nervous about it, let me just tell you something. This has always been the case. What destroys the relationship with God? Ignoring the voice of God. You've never really doubted that was a problem. No one doubts that that's an issue. Everybody believes that if you're in a relationship, you have to hear the voice of the other being, even a human relationship, right? Even a a person to person. I'm a grandpa for the fifth time. Yeah, amen. It's awesome. The new baby is only four months old, but I pay really close attention to what he's trying to communicate. You know, when you're watching a little tiny baby, you actually have to pay closer attention because they have no words. And so you start paying attention to little fussiness. You start paying attention to yawning. You start paying attention to the way their eyes are looking at you, whether they're smiling, whether they're distracted. You start paying attention to the little cues that their faces are giving because there's not much else you got. But that is a real communicative relationship. The ultimate expression, guys, I'm going to tell you this, men who are married, pay, pay attention. Men who hope to be married someday, pay attention. They may be more important for you guys than the other guys. <laughs> the best thing you can do for a woman is know what she's thinking. You laugh because you think it's impossible. But wait, but wait. How many of you guys ever dated? Now you're quiet. Because you used to anticipate what she was thinking when you were dating. You know what the problem is? You stopped paying attention. It can be done. It just takes very intense focus. So here's the point. Guys, two times a year, maybe three. Birthday, anniversary, Christmas. Focus. <laughs> the rest of the year, you can go about your normal distracted business. Three times a year, birthday, anniversary, Christmas. Focus. Pay attention. Try to understand what's going on in there in that place you think is unavailable. And you know you've done it before. You know you were dating and you were anticipating while you were dating. Those of you who wish to be married, that's the key. Win this battle, win the heart. A relationship is always built on connected communication. The relationship with God is built on connected communication. Did you hear what Jesus said? Those of you who choose to completely ignore my command. Command is the strongest sort of statement. Those of you who ignore my command and teach others to do, you're blown it. You are least likely to make it. You're blowing the relationship. So I want you to understand where we're going with this thing. 
Understand that God is, Jesus has established grace as the covering for those who have heard the voice and headed for home. And he said, if you ignore the voice, the covering cannot cover you. You got it? You see the difference? Not if you got it. Okay, 20% communication. We're accepting that for now. I'm going to accept 20% communication, 40% ignoring me, and the other group hasn't gotten it yet. So we'll keep going. The key, the key to this entire passage is the last verse. The key to this entire, entire segment is verse 20. The key is, I warn you. Now, if Jesus says to you, but I warn you, would you pay attention? Are you sure you would? Because there's a lot of places in the Bible that say, I warn you. Do you, actually, do you stop on those places and read a little more carefully? I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. This is a problem. Now, especially for a Jewish audience. These people have been looking at the Pharisees and the scribes as the pros. These are the guys who get it. These are the guys who do it. These are guys who spend their lives focusing on this. They wake up at night thinking of ways to obey God better. These guys write down rule upon rule upon rule. They're trying to figure this out. These are the pros at righteousness. And my righteousness, my righteousness is supposed to exceed professional level righteousness. So you see how this thing is keeping people's attention now? He's completely turned on its ear the process of salvation. He's talked about the kingdom of heaven being granted to the one who heads home and the kingdom of heaven being granted to the one at the martyr's stake. That's the, the poles of this thing. The, the Pharisees said the kingdom of heaven isn't granted to you till you get everything right. And certainly if you're being martyred, God doesn't like you anymore, so certainly you're out of the kingdom. And Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand. The kingdom of heaven is granted to you when you head home, when you first recognize your need, when you recognize your spiritual poverty and turn to home, you start listening for God's voice. That's Boom, kingdom of heaven is yours. If you doubt me, go back to verse 3. And then he said, when you're at the martyr's stake, when you're in that last thing, when all, all the religious world has told you you've forgotten, and God doesn't like you any longer, you are still assured the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just tore their, their, their whole system down, and he's starting to rebuild it. Don't think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I haven't. You ignore me, you ignore me at your own peril, but your righteousness has to be better than the righteousness of the Pharisees. The, don't think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I, I, I want you to understand that. I want you to understand, however, if you ignore me, if you ignore my command, you do so at your own peril, but your righteousness has to be better than the Pharisees and the scribes. The follower of Christ's righteousness. The follower of Christ's righteousness. The follower of Christ, that person's righteousness, must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus is up on a hill, like Moses. He's gathered the elders around him, the disciples. 
like Moses. A, a large crowd of the believers are there like Moses. He sat down to speak ex cathedra, the most authoritative position. He begins to make these pronouncements, first going through these laws of spirituality in the walk. He begins to make these pronouncements about the behaviors of the believers. They are salt and they are light. And then when they, when they start to think he's come to destroy Moses completely, he says, no, I haven't come to do anything to Moses. I'm here to fulfill Moses. I'm here to show you what Moses meant. I'm here to give you the right understanding of who Moses was. As Jesus walks the streets of Galilee, as Jesus goes about the countryside loving and living as God would in that space, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, as Jesus represents God as the, the exact representation of God in human flesh, as Jesus moves around, he's fulfilling what it means to follow the laws of Moses. You want to see what the walk with God looks like when you follow the laws and principles Moses is teaching? Watch what Jesus does. So the question that remains for them and for us is how in the world are we going to reach that? These guys are experts. How do we do better than the pros? It's like somebody rolling the basketball out on the court and saying, uh, Mike Peterson, Kevin Durant, Mike Peterson, Kevin Durant, Mike, you have to be better than him. That's all you have to do to get to heaven is be better than him. That's what it felt like to them. It felt like an impossibility. But catch some things. Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, If you had known what these words mean... I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Here's what happened that day. The disciples were walking through a field. They pulled some grain off and therefore broke the Sabbath. They read that grain in their hand and therefore broke the Sabbath. And then they blew the, 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 the uh, uh, coverings of that grain off from their hand. And then they ate that grain, therefore breaking the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath, and breaking the Sabbath. There were rules against this kind of behavior. And when they were attacked by these very scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, what you guys don't understand is that in a connection with God, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. You wouldn't have condemned these innocent men had you understood Hosea 6, verse 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Notice that when he begins to describe what happens to a person who's being converted, when he's describing the conversion process in those, in those first seven statements that he's making, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, when the conversion process begins to take place, he says, blessed are the merciful. Level one of the Christian converted heart is mercifulness. Before purity, before, before right motives is mercy. I desire mercy not sacrifice. Here's the deal. Catch these points if you don't catch anything else today. Divine law is taught in transferable principles that describe reality. Divine law is taught in transferable principles. These principles should be applicable no matter where you are no matter who you're talking to, no matter what your circumstances, transferable principles, they move with you. They go where you go. Transferable principles that describe reality. 
If I jump off the stage, am I going up? How do you know that? How, how many of you think I can fly? Maybe when Jesus comes. So if I jump off the stage, you all think I'm going to go down to the ground. Because you believe in a law about that, right? Now, does the law force me to go down? No, the law is simply a description of what's going to happen to me, right? We're very thankful for the laws of physics. The laws of physics describe the way the world works. Here we go. Ready? Down. Down again. Every time I try, I go down. It is impossible for me to break the laws of physics. Because the laws of physics simply describe reality. If the laws of God simply describe reality, an attempt to break those laws will not break them. It will break me. This is a pretty small jump, but if I jump off the building, the building on the outside here is 24 feet tall. If I jump off the building onto the cement at the other end, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to receive a punishment from the sudden stop at the bottom. Right? Is that Isaac Newton's fault? No, he just described what would happen to me so I would be not stupid enough to jump off the building. Right? I will accelerate. I don't have time to accelerate to maximum speed, but I'll accelerate to enough of a speed that when I hit the ground, I'm probably going to leave myself broken and bloodied, if not deceased. The laws of God, as the laws of physics, describe reality. If you can understand that one thing about the laws of God, your resistance and your pushback against it will change you. It will change in you. It is not God prescribing behavior. It's God describing reality. So here's the other side of it. Human laws prescribe behavior that can be defined and measured as either right or wrong. Human laws... Dis- prescribed behavior. What's prescribed mean? If you get a prescription from, the, from, the, the, uh, from your doctor, what does that mean? He's sending you to get a specific medication from the pharmacy, right? Or the druggist, depending on how old you are. Okay? He's prescribing a specific thing for you. The laws of men prescribe behavior that can be defined and measured as right right and wrong. Why do you have stop signs? So that you will stop. Why should you stop? Well, usually you're at an intersection where other vehicles might be coming, correct? This stop sign is actually there prescribing a stop by you to prevent you from trying to break one of the laws of physics. Two masses cannot occupy the same space. Bam! Right? Then a whole bunch of other laws of physics start to, ha- start to, talk, start to come into pe- the picture. Vectors and speed and relationships. All that starts to happen and you end up broken and battered again. The laws of man simply prescribe a behavior. Can you run a stop sign and live? Sure you can. 
Sure you can. I just passed a guy running a stop sign yesterday. I was leaving the church, went down the street. I came up to the stop sign up, up on Springview. He came through the other direction, just came right on through. And I looked at him and thought, how dare you? I did. I kind of had this, how dumb are you? What if somebody was turning from the other direction? I, I, this immediate reaction to, why would you do such a thing? He didn't get hurt. Law broken. No harm done. Other than my disdain. You know why? Because I described his behavior as wrong. Do you get the picture? You understand what's going on? God's laws simply describe reality and they are transferable in principle to any place or any action, any idea, any person, any culture. They're movable. Applicable to everyone. Human laws prescribe behavior and define right right and wrong. Here's what I want you to see about the people he's talking to. The scribes had found within the laws of Moses by the time of Jesus 613 laws for you to behave, for you to do. They had described from the law of Moses. They had written down, here's what I found in Moses' law, 613 things you're supposed to do or not do. And then when they got to the Sabbath, the oral tradition started going, well, we have a lot of things to sort of decide here. And they came up with 1,521 rules for keeping the Sabbath. You thought the Adventist burden was heavy. Man, suddenly waiting on Sabbath doesn't seem like such a big deal. Which is, by the way, a human law prescribing a behavior so that it might be defined as right or wrong. How did your knees get unsanctified and your hips become something else? But we won't talk about that now. This is from William Barclay's commentary on this passage. We may best see the scribes in action in the laws that are laid down for the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That on it no work is to be done. That is a great principle. But the Jewish mind had a passion for definition. So they asked, what is work? All kinds of things were classified as work. For instance... To carry a burden on the Sabbath day is work. But next, a burden had to be defined. So the scribal law lays down that a burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig. Enough wine for the mixing in a goblet. Milk enough for one to swallow. Honey enough to put upon a wound. Oil enough to anoint a small member. I think that means member of your body, not member of your church. Water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read um, the, the, the plant, read enough to make a pen, and so on, and so on, and so on. So they spent endless hours arguing whether a man could or could not lift a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath whether a tailor committed a sin if he went out with a needle in his robe, whether a woman might wear a brooch or false hair, even if a man might go out on the Sabbath with artificial teeth. I'm just thinking. If a man might lift his child on the Sabbath day. That's just one small portion of the discussion. 
Now, Jesus is talking to that crowd. And everybody in the crowd has been taught by those guys. They have been told all the prescriptive behaviors for what is righteousness. They have been told again and again the prescriptive behaviors that define righteousness in the end. In doing so, they have all become very, very adept at a legalistic relationship with God, which is nothing more than paganism. Paganism is, by definition, my ability to manipulate the behavior, thoughts, and actions of God. Right? That's what a pagan does, right? A pagan simply throws the virgin in the volcano to keep the volcano from exploding on the island, right? They sacrifice their children so that they might have their house blessed. They bury grandma in the foundation so that this house will forever have fertility. This is what pagans do. We have adopted and adapted Christianity to that and they had adopted and adapted Judaism to that by trying to manipulate God by our behavior. By trying to make God save me, make God like me, make God do stuff for me, I have slid over into paganism and away from Christianity. Jesus says, look guys, I'm not coming to destroy the law. I'm coming to change the way you deal with it. Your righteousness must exceed the behavioralism of the Pharisees. Okay. But I'm telling you right now, behavioralism is a whole lot easier. As a preacher, I would love to just tell you what to do and have you all do it. I would. It's measurable. It's much more measurable. If I can look at all of you and say, look at them, they're all behaving as they should behave because I've told them to behave and they're behaving properly. I would then have something I could say, check, they're all good. The problem with principles is people apply them differently. And the problem with relationship is we're all in different places in that relationship. And as a preacher, it's maddening. Because a bunch of you folks do stuff I would not like you to do. I bring it up every once in a while. Some of you listen, some of you seem to ignore me. I'll keep bringing it up. A squeaky wheel. But what do we do if we have to get rid of our behavioralism and live a different kind of faith? How do we go about this thing? Well, Jesus didn't leave us without any guidance. Well, before I get to Jesus, I need to point out some I'll point out his this Matthew's illustration. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus. A rich man comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Do you remember the story? Some of you who are familiar with the scriptures remember this story. This man comes to Jesus. He's a practicing Jew. He's a very wealthy man. He comes and comes, finds this teacher, this, this backwoods teacher from Galilee, this peasant teacher from Nazareth. He comes to this man who's been working his whole life, has the calloused hands of a carpenter, and he says, Hey, uh, I, uh, I need to know what I must do to have eternal life. Do you know what Jesus tells him? He recites to him the commandments that relate to a relationship with other human beings. He only recites to him the commandments that relate to a relationship with others. If you pay attention to it, this guy apparently has a problem with his relationships with others. The man answers, 
Hey, this I have done all of my life. These things I have kept since my youth. So I have been following the rules since my youth. The letter of the law. What do I still lack? I don't want to go to Jesus' answer, which is, a, which is along a, a whole bunch of personal sacrifice discussion, but I just want to go to the point that the man has no assurance. Do you see that? Now, frankly, 25, 30 years ago, we used to revel in the idea that our folks didn't have assurance. From one small quote, we, we, we reveled in the idea that no one should have assurance. Yet the scripture is constantly telling us we can. And if you read widely enough, if you read widely enough, in uh, E.G. White's commentaries and E.G. White's prophetic commentary and E.G. White's testimonial commentaries, you'll find the same support. This poor guy comes to Jesus and says, I've done everything right my whole life and I still don't know. What must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to have eternal life? What do I still lack in all of, after all the things I've chosen? When Jesus summarizes the commandments, he does it this way. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the elevating of the commands? We think of this as somehow Jesus deflating the importance of the commands. It's just the opposite. The demands of love are so far above the demands of behavior. The demands of love are so far greater than the demands of behavior. Again, let me illustrate with relationship. If you're a married person, male or female this time, you know that you can walk through that relationship behaviorally, right? You can do the things you have to do. You can do the things you have to do. You can, whatever your responsibilities, whatever your spouse's needs, you can go through and just sort of as an automaton do those things, right? Without any heart in it. But to put your heart in it, it's transformational to both you and the other person. To put your heart into the things you do is transformational to both you and the other person. A teenager at a certain age. So let's pick a kid who's, uh, say, 15. The reason they now obey their parents has to change. A 15-year-old kid on through adulthood does what their parents want because of the relationship with the parent. Right? The 15, 16-year-old who's off away from their parents, they've hopped in someone else's car, they've driven off on their own, they're off over the hill and around the corner, and nobody knows what they're doing, and parents aren't watching them. What is going to be chosen now by that kid is going to be chosen based on the relationship with the parent, and it's going to be chosen based on whether or not they believe the parent has them and their blessing and their benefit at heart when they give instructions. The child is going to do what the parent is saying is right if they believe the parent's decisions, the parent's desires are for their benefit and their blessing. 
God knows that about your relationship with Him. That a relationship with God is based on whether or not I believe that God has my best interest at heart. And when I read the commands of God, when I read the things that God is asking me to do, when I hear the voice of God, whether or not I believe that God has my best interest at heart carries the day on my choices. (coughs) When Jesus raises the standard of behavior to the standard of love, he carries a principle forward into eternity because loving will go on long beyond this planet. I don't know if I've given you enough of a a window into this passage to take you home and let you work it through and let you to to discover what you what God has for you in it. But let me finish with this: Jesus' pilgrimage of love on the earth was a living demonstration of the character of the law of God. If I have not given you enough of a window, go home. Read through the Gospels, read through the Gospels, read through the Gospels until you can start to understand what it might be to imitate Jesus. Once you start imitating Jesus in the way He is, you can be pretty sure that this relationship thing is working out for you. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, This is a pretty complicated little bit today. I pray for your Holy Spirit. I pray that we might each understand what you're having to say to us. What little peace there might be. What process you might be calling us into. What relationship you might want us to change. I pray that we would understand what it means to follow you to the ends of the earth because we trust you and we love you. I pray that you might make it clear to us that you're trying to bless us. That rules and laws and commands in Scripture are your attempt to wrap your arms around us and bless us and love us as we live in the armpit of the universe. I pray that you would help us to to kick aside the temptation for behavioralism and join wholeheartedly in our attempt to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. To make that our watchword today and tomorrow. To make that what we do as followers. Teach us to see people like you see them. Teach us to love people like you love them. Help us to find worship that drives our heart to yours. Help us to know you can be trusted and to act on that in the deepest part of our being. In Jesus' name, amen.